Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Inclusive Educators Podcast, a podcast coming to you by way of the Center for Teaching and Learning. So I have some good, I think I've been calling it now uh, sweet and sour news, right? Because people say bittersweet, so they start to focus on the bitter part of it before the sweet portion of it. We're going to focus on the sweet portion of it. I have accepted another position at our crosstown rival, uh, Fort Collins, Colorado State University, as the Assistant Dean of Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and in Agriculture. So uh, the Assistant Dean for IDEA in the College of Agricultural Sciences. So I'm excited to be leaving uh, and going and taking on that position. I'm not excited to be leaving the University of Colorado Boulder, especially with the CTL team. But today... I am fortunate to be joined by the person who is going to be taking over the podcast and leading it with you all, Dr. Rachna Bave. Uh, I'm just going to go ahead and let you introduce yourself, Rachna, in terms of who you are, where you come from, and how you've arrived here at CU Border, as you've been here now over the last, what has it been, six months? Five months. Yeah. Five months. Five, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So tell us a little bit about yourself and how you <laughs> arrived here at CU Boulder. Thanks, Cortez. You're so sad to see you go. <laughs> um, so hello, everyone. My name is Rachna Bhave, and um, I am currently the Equitable Assessment Specialist working at the Center for Teaching and Learning. Um, I came to the U.S. as a Ph.D. student in biology from India uh, back in 2016. And through my graduate teaching career, uh, graduate career, I realized my passion for teaching a lot more. and so. I immersed myself in everything that the Center for Teaching had to offer at University of Virginia, where I was at um, for seven years. And um, I figured what I wanted to do in terms of work was not necessarily research in pedagogy, but but be able to apply the things that I had learned across disciplines. Because over time, I had learned that good teaching is good teaching, no matter the discipline. And so uh, what really brought me to this position was the the uh, my belief in the impact I could have to teaching practices at the university level, uh, and I think centers for teaching and learning are a big hub of creating that change. And so, once I finished my PhD, I joined. I I mean, I had accepted this offer, so I was really excited to join this position, which I did in July. It was a whirlwind of a move from a place I had lived for seven years. But I'm so happy to have been here, gotten to know you for whatever short time, and uh, have learned so much in the past five months. You know, there's something that you just said, uh, which is good teaching is good teaching no matter the discipline. And sometimes I jokingly say this because whenever I'm doing consultations around campus or, you know, talking about a lot of the principles behind inclusive teaching, justice, equity, so on and so forth. I will undoubtedly hear like a faculty member express that those principles are just difficult to uh, to really integrate into that type of discipline. And, you know, sometimes I will, you know, I do acknowledge that it's not necessarily, you know, taking that concept or that practice, you know, step for step, but looking at that concept in general and then looking at how you can apply it within that particular concept or the context. I always yeah. think about, you know, Paulo, right, in um, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, where he mm -hmm. talks about limiting situations. 
So there are some limitations in terms of how certain things can be applied within that context, but undoubtedly, we certainly can do good work wherever it is that that we are working in. So I really like, yeah, that I really like that you acknowledge that because that's really that's really the goal and the hope of of the work for for centers for teaching and learning. How can we inspire educators to do really really good work and teach in really great ways that are connected to the needs uh, of of today's college learners? For sure. Um, yeah, I was gonna say that even for me, like growing up, I loved going to school and college. Like school was my happy place, so I loved studying. I loved being immersed in an environment that involved teaching and learning. And uh, as I as I started becoming a a more regular a teaching on a regular basis, I realized that not all my students are like that, right? Not all of them are first of all interested in te- learning. Uh, or like learning the particular subject that I was trying to teach. Uh, but second of all, not all of them are going on the same career trajectory that I chose uh, through my college. And that was such a, uh, it wasn't a rude shock to me, but then I wondered that what are my students taking away from my classes? What am I doing differently that they can still remember this class, no matter the discipline they go on to? And that really prompted me to think a lot about issues of equity and justice in my teaching, because I realized no matter the discipline, we all have uh, uncomfortable histories associated with those disciplines, but also those disciplines become instruments for prejudice in the real world. Mm -hmm. Um, And so how do you get students to be aware of it uh, and then think about it no matter what discipline they are in in their in the future and and that to me is like the place where learning happens so that's what motivated me to then think about broader ways in which you can introduce these topics of discussion regardless of the discipline and and it's not only about like specific issues of equity and justice but also the way we teach our students that can Mm -hmm. be done in a kind manner uh, and doesn't have to be harsh and and how and and that just needs humanity right it doesn't need Mm -hmm. you to be an expert in in a specific subject to be able to do that and and that's why i felt like the the principles of good teaching should apply to any discipline uh, no matter what and of course like you said there are constraints to it uh, but i think a lot of people engage in that work only if there's like some motivation to engage in that work and Mm -hmm. i think sometimes we have to just uh remind people, uh, remind teachers, actually, that they have the agency to have those discussions in their classroom. Yeah. And you said a couple of great things um, that I think are really important for for folks who are listening to this, uh, particularly instructors, to think about. Um, And one of them was looking at the historical nature behind the disciplines that we teach in. As someone who is a by-trade historian of education, I've also emphasized this in the work that I do within, uh, you know, inclusive pedagogy is being able to think about the disciplines in which we're teaching in and acknowledging, again, those limitations inside of those areas. And, you know, that's a part of justice in terms of teaching as well as being able to think at, think about whose ideas uh, within one's respective field have been emphasized more, being able to uh, thematically or categorically look at the social identities that are typically more represented than others, and then to um, you know understand fully 
what that means then for what students are uh, taking away from that particular uh, field, as well as the ideas that tend to be um, generated more oftentimes than others. Another thing that you also, um, you know, talked about is not only just thinking about what activities and, and what things that we're doing inside of the classroom, but being able to reflect on what students are taking away from that classroom, right? So, you know, what is it that students now know or what knowledge do they have or do they believe that they have, you know, after all of yeah. this? <laughs> as well as, yeah, in the last episode with uh, Dr. Mays Ahmad, right, we talked about, you know, being able to think about you know, as a, as an instructor, it's our responsibility to to truly reflect on how that course went, and then how we can improve not only the course but to also improve our ability to teach and reach students. Right? You, you know, the goal is ultimately to continue growing. So I do think that that's very important to to emphasize as well. You know, how what is it that students and learners are taking away from the courses, and then how. Are these experiences not only going to better them from the degree standpoint, but just also as human beings, right? That's the that's the primary thing that that we should definitely be uh, concerned with as as, in, as instructors. At least personally, that's what I think. For sure, yeah, I I totally agree with you. And I think my journey to discover that has been very like babied, and I can uh, I did this very interesting exercise once during grad school. I was taking this course on philosophies of higher education mm. uh, it was life-changing taking that course for me to be honest because uh, I had reached a point where I was very cynical about my role at the university I was very cynical about academia in general um, and I think just uh, through that course I discovered how a lot of the past have probably grappled with the same problems that I am grappling with but I also saw the idealism of what they were trying to achieve in a university. Mm. And uh, as part of that course, I was asked to write, we were all asked to write like a personal pedagogical philosophy statement. And that exercise really helped me reflect on moments in my life where, which really changed the way I thought about academia and the world. Um, and and I, I always, uh, that's why I can sometimes now rattle off like, oh, this one incident that happened or that one incident that happened that like, you know, changed the way I thought or taught me something new about society and science in general. Uh, and, and so for the listeners, one, I, if you have the opportunity to take such a course for your own benefit, I encourage you to, uh, but also regardless, kind of try to reflect on, uh, points of intersection that we've all observed in our own discipline and society. And I think whenever you, uh, you may relate like personal incidents or incidents happening in your classroom, but I think just having the opportunity to reflect on it, you realize that even though universities can be a bubble sometimes, that they really are not. They're often uh, either a reflection of how our society is or has been. And, uh, and or their opportunities or windows of where change can take place. And so okay. uh, I think that exercise taught me a lot in terms of how uh, different at different points, I realized that what I'm learning in the classroom is not devoid from. 
injust injustices that have either happened in the past or are taking place right now. And really, like you mentioned, who gets to build knowledge? It's a very powerful question to ask because then once you get the answer to it, you realize that not everyone has been entitled in the past in order mm -hmm. to create a body of knowledge. And then if uh, I often think about, you know, as uh, science as a pursuit of truth or pursuit of trying to know about phenomenon in the universe, right? But mm -hmm. if the people or scientists who have created that body of knowledge is a limited identity, ethnical identity or racial identity of people, then is that knowledge really reflective of what is out out there in the universe? And so I think that has always been in my mind throughout my career mm -hmm. as a grad student and as an undergrad. Um, and I totally forgot why I brought up this point. But I hope like what I'm encouraging everyone to do is to remember that we are not disjointed from the society we live in. So everything that we do, the smallest thing we do in a classroom has a ripple effect eventually. Uh, or can have a positive ripple effect too. Yeah, no, you were, um, you were <laughs> basically, yeah, because I, I was talking about, you know, like who's reflected inside of the class, and you know how those, how, how that can also disadvantage uh, learners. And you know, I don't want to hammer it away too much because we can definitely, uh, <laughs> <Talk> <laughs> we can definitely segue into, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> um, but you know, what I've personally learned with the importance of, of representation is to think about, you know, not only who is represented, but then who's not represented. And then what does the lack of representation from certain communities, how, how and in what ways does that disadvantage us? And when even when you ask that question, how are we disadvantaged by a lack of representation mm -hmm. from certain communities? What you do is, is that you reiterate the importance of those individuals. So it is to say that they are valuable and that there are things that folks from those communities do have to offer to this particular field. And because they're they're not present, we are now being disadvantaged or you know, the work in and of itself isn't reaching its fullest capacity. So yeah, that's been great. Those have been some great things that I've learned in um in my own journey through being a more inclusive, you know, equitable instructor. So to some of the things that, um, you know, we talked a little bit about your own journey and at least like the academic pieces of it, but I always like to ask our guests on the show if there's anyone in their lives, uh, personal lives, or even just on your educational journey, who's really inspired your own work, you know, anyone that you've come across in the classroom who's, you know, really inspired you to uh, to do the work that you do today. Um, can I take two names? <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, it wasn't just one. It was more. <laughs> so uh, I would say going back, uh, for sure, my art teacher back in school, uh, I was, I mean, I was always like this kid who was like interested in studies, but I would really slack off, to be honest. Like, I'm doing, I'll be fine during the semester. And then the end of the term, I'll not study and I'll be so confident that, oh, I know everything. It's fine. I'll be, I'll do okay in my exams. And then suddenly from being the top of the class, I'll be not in the bottom, but I'll be like the middle six or eight people, right? So that was always a constant struggle. But I remember in my third grade, transitioning to my fourth grade, um, this art teacher, I don't know what she saw in me, but she just put me in this like art competition, inter-school art competition. Uh, 
I was like, yeah, sure. And at that time, I would do artwork every day. Like every day, I would like draw something over the summers. And uh, <laughs> I don't, the 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 topic was something. I drew something very childish. I was like, oh, whatever. Like I'm not gonna win anything out of this. But then I won a third prize in that interschool competition. And then suddenly that like boosted my confidence so much because uh, it just happened out of nowhere. I, I honestly was lucky. I don't know how that happened. But to have won like the be the third best of like all first to fourth graders across schools in that city, it really boosted my confidence, but it gave me opportunity because then she put me in every possible drawing competition she really encouraged us and she would be like, oh, you should try this. Even even like years later, when I met her, uh, when I was like in first year of college, she handed to me a set of oil paints and was like, I need you to start oil painting now. You need to like move forward in your skill set. So she was one who really pushed us every time. And she did that with a lot of people in my class. It wasn't j just like, uh, you know, the people who are good at studies get to do this artwork. She really saw something in each one of us, whoever ended up taking part in those competitions. And I remember those so fondly. Um, so she really like made me fall in love with school even more and like made me believe a little bit in myself. Um, but interestingly, like related to that teacher, later on in my first year of college, I was like looking through... Uh, some friends like some school acquaintances on Facebook and one of them posted like these pretty very beautiful sketches and portraits on Facebook and I started talking to him uh, and I was like oh wow I'm amazed that you never like you know took part in drawing competitions like you're even better an artist than I am like I, I don't even practice art anymore and he said something very interesting to me. He was like, yeah, I was never seen by that teacher. Like, it was always you guys. And then I realized that even though, like, she gave opportunities to whatever, eight to ten of us, we were still the kinds of students who were, like, probably good at studies, would listen to teachers, were were kind of, like, never got into trouble for any reason type of students. And I realized that the fond memories of school that I have are so different from this other person who used to make, I remember, cartoon drawings during class and stuff like that. And that really taught me how uh, privileged I was, like how much privilege I got in being in being like kind of OK at studies that like I just had so many opportunities, doors opened for me. Whereas this person who's truly deserving didn't really get that chance in school. Uh, and had to actually fight with his parents to keep drawing because they wanted him to study and not do artwork. And and I think that was the first, like, for me, this idea that uh, school can be uh, enchanting for some, but it can also be a place of lost opportunity for others. And mm. how, as teachers, can you keep that in mind? And, and I that, like, really prompted me to reflect on my own behavior in school or the opportunities that me and my friends got, like we were probably the top five when it came to grades, but that somehow granted us opportunities elsewhere as well, which others who deserved it didn't get. So, so even though that teacher was very influential to in my life, uh, uh, I think that incident with that friend also taught me like in ways in which they were also biased 
and i that that didn't sit right with me and i i realized that most teachers uh have the opportunity of so much change like the change that they brought in my life they had the capacity to do that for all the 40 students in our class but that didn't happen and maybe they didn't keep that in mind that they were somehow favoring someone regardless of like other achievements but by uh, by not paying attention to who else is in the classroom they mm-hmm. probably disadvantaged some folks so that that really stayed with me as an incident the other was in my oh, undergrad just, oh just yeah real quick ahead. before you yeah cuz i want to you know there's some great points that you've made with the first person and whenever i you know one of the so one of the workshops that i facilitate on campus is uh, it's it's based off of the book by Tracy Addy and others or at all um the what inclusive instructors are uh, or what inclusive instructors do and so i just basically <laughs> titled the the presentation what inclusive instructors are doing and i don't not only take some of the principles and practices that they take inside of that book but i take other principles and practices that i found in other really great literature as well and really compile it and and try to you know focus on thematically what are some of the consistent things that we read about now there's a, a an aspect of the workshop where i ask the participants you know what think of think of the most inclusive instructor that you've had and you know tell me what are characteristics about that person that made them really really inclusive to you And of course you know everyone goes around the room and then they say different things that they that that person has done and I always you know remind folks that sometimes the things that that some people may do that are great can be a hard lesson that was learned right so in some respects you can have a a faculty member I heard a student who said this that there was a faculty member that stopped um having students put graphs and charts together that were in color recognizing that not all people could see in color. So to those folks who were colorblind, it's really hard to distinguish between a lot of different things that they would see on those charts and different things like that, right? So I said it's very likely that that person, you know, is not a colorblind person had to learn that lesson the hard way <laughs> inside of the classroom. Right? So basically, we can have a lot of great instructors and to what you just said Sometimes they do have blind spots as well and I appreciate the fact that you acknowledge hey this was a really great instructor for me who did some really great things and I also recognize that this person may not have been and likely wasn't received the same way by everybody inside of those spaces. I forget the way that you articulated it but it was pretty beautiful when you said, you know, to some students it could be enchanting but to others, right? You know, not so much. So being able to think about us as instructors knowing that you can walk inside of a classroom and have 30 people and honor the fact that 30 people are going to walk away with different experiences with you so the goal at least for me is to try to have as many of them have positive experiences mm. as possible while also acknowledging that that's also a very difficult thing to do but you know i do appreciate that that instructor you know had the relationship and everything with you because what you showed or what I'm hearing with that is that that was also an instructor who saw something in you that you hadn't necessarily recognized yet but then also was introducing you to experiences 
to help you pull and bring those things out while also challenging you to continue growing as well. So yeah, that's uh that's a really beautiful experience to have. Do you All have right, you're... something to share? Oh, no, <laughs> you no, you said you, you said you you said you have two instructors. I do. So uh the second one I wanted to talk about is uh one of my undergraduate uh professors in ecology and evolutionary biology. And I think just the the I realized this now, like at that time I used to sometimes mock him <laughs> in my head. But I realize now so often the things that I tell everyone about what made my undergraduate institution great is actually practices that he incorporated in his classroom. And and I don't know, I, uh, I, I'm sometimes amazed that, you know, he really, I think one, he taught us to think like adults to be sh- like, because in, in India, we all come from a very sheltered environment in, in school, like in general, like I think parenting is such a big part like parents are such a uh, ubiquitous presence in your life like they'll be there like even I'm whatever 32 now my mom will still talk to me about papers I'm not writing for my thesis whether I'm doing this that etc very involved parenting so in that sense I think he was the first one who you know uh, asked us for our opinions and took them seriously asked us to ask questions and took them seriously so I think that was great that he did. And I, I'll indicate uh, or I'll talk about a couple of practices that to me, I think totally changed the way I thought of academia, right? Until then, I think uh, education or academia is always like this pursuit to a profession, like a paying career, like, okay, you're going to do some things that interest you, but eventually you want to get a job out of your career that will pay you and pay the bills and so on, right? Whereas he uh, is like he used to talk to us about science in a way that was very and and this was an institution that had just been established in India to promote uh, students to take up basic sciences and science being a scientist as a career which is not common in India is what I'll tell you most people do like engineering or medicine more applied sciences fields which pay well eventually uh, but like basic sciences at most you're going to be a scientist a lab technician uh like the job prospects are not very high so but the university as a whole i think had a great mission in mind in that they they impressed upon us early on that all science is collaborative that there are no boundaries disciplinary boundaries of like physics chem maths biology and so on and that uh in order to solve any problem and be a good scientist at solving problems you did need some understanding of the breadth of vocabulary to be you need to one be open to realizing that okay the field is limited in answering that question so maybe you have to ask somebody in chemistry oh like i need to learn this technique in order to solve this problem and so on so they really made us think about science uh, science as a method of problem solving more than anything else and encouraged us to always think across disciplinary boundaries. Now, uh, coming back to this professor of ecology and evolution, this was in our second year of uh, college. And we had already, I think in our, oh man, I'm, I'm changing persons in my head now. But like we had another great professor in my first year who did an incredible job at showing us that we didn't need to stick to a book. Like we never had lecture slides. I'm I'm actually talking about a different professor right now. 
that he never used like lecture slides in his classroom. He would just come into class and ask us a question. And then we would debate amongst ourselves and come up with an answer. And in the process of those conversations, we learn different concepts about biology. But we we never like, he never opened a set of slides and showed us in that entire class. It was just question answers. We were just debating the whole time. And that car- class itself was such a trigger for a lot of us to pursue biology. It made it so interesting. And we also realized that there are a lot of things that we can deduce from our own reasoning that we didn't have to rely on an external body of knowledge to discover those things, right? And that through the process of him guiding our conversation uh, and informing us, like, of course, verbally, of like, okay, the literature says this or the research says this. What do you think about this now? Like, does it change your hypothesis? Does it change what experiments you would propose for it? It was like, just lovely. I mean, I... I uh, that that way of teaching biology was just so inspiring and i, I know yeah. a lot of friends who like came in thinking they wanted to do physics but they ended up pursuing biology because of that class which was which showed me the power of like how a teacher can change someone's career trajectory mm-hmm. totally and the impact that teaching can have in the classroom so you want to say something, so I'm going to pause. <laughs> no, no, I was just going to, it's just uh, cool to see. I love asking this particular question because I like looking at the face of the individual as they are, you know, reflecting. <laughs> back, right? Because those emotions come back to you. So you yeah. get to that person's human emotions being back emotionally inside of that space, even though you're not physically there anymore. Right. So it's cool. As you were talking about it, and I'm sure our our listeners can can feel it, but it's it was actually just cool to see like those expressions coming off oh, yeah. on your face about you know like how inspired I was and you know like you know just like how your li- your eyes uh, you know light up, up as you're yeah about that yeah no so that's why I was just like no that that was, a, <laughs> that was that's really cool um, and I appreciate that as well you know not only did that instructor you know teach you all in very inspiring ways but even right getting folks to i don't even know if i want to do this anymore i want to do what that person is doing right so uh i think that's a really cool thing you know i don't think all of us are wanting folks to come in and and change their whole careers or whatever but i do think that there may be some some instances where students can take a class and that class may just be a part of you know like that might just be a part of the curriculum you have to take this yeah this was a mandatory like intro bio course one like first semester taking this class in college yeah so, so <laughs> with things like that you know uh, and not every student I t- i'm honest with students when i teach yeah. you know the class that i teach i ask them when they're introducing themselves hey why are you taking this class and you are not going to hurt my feelings if you need this credit <laughs> like just, yeah you just you can just tell me and then at the end i'm always you know, at least happy for the folks that when they leave it, not only did you leave with the credit, but you left with a really great experience. There was a student who, uh, so I teach at the the graduate level um, as an as an adjunct, and there was a student who just graduated, earned his master's degree last week at the institution where I teach, and I just um, commented congratulations on his LinkedIn, 
And then he wrote back, you know, something to the effect of, you know, thank you so much, Dr. Scott, you know, for being a part of this journey. Uh, your class was very inspiring to me. And it was, and it's professors like you that helped make this journey, you know, what it was. Right. You know, those are the things that I'm just like, hey, at least that person left me with a great experience and I didn't do any harm inside of those spaces. So, you know, and and who knows if this student was, you know, at the undergraduate level or that class was at the undergraduate level, someone thought about they had to take that class, but then they never thought that they would have an experience like that or uh, they just get introduced to things and we talk about things in ways in which hey, I never thought that this would become something that would be a passion of mine. So yeah. I at least appreciate hearing things like that from uh, from anyone who's talking about their educational journeys, because I think that there actually are a lot more people who are doing things that are connected to uh, uh, the works of educators who really inspired them. And it wasn't something that they came in and they just wanted to do. I'll give exactly. you an example for myself. Yeah, when I was in undergrad, uh, my first major was uh, was was education. So it's funny, it started out in education, and then I changed my major to communication arts because I took this class with this professor who I loved. Like when I was struggling inside of the class, um, I went up to her. I did the whole typical, uh, "What do I do to get my grade up?" <laughs> yeah. Uh, I just want to. I just want to make sure that I get the credit for this class. Mm -hmm. And he said something so simple to me, which was, "If you want to do better, you have to move up to the front of the class." And I think I've talked about this before, but not only did I move up to the front of the class, but she started to engage with me a lot more while I was at the front of the class. So it wasn't a just. It wasn't just about my positionality inside of the class. A lot of it had to do with my lack of engagement with the course material. Mm -hmm. I think what she saw was that I wasn't engaging enough within the course to really grapple with the material. So then I ended up moving to the front of the class. She ended up engaging with me a lot more and not just calling on me for everything, you know, but we built up into that. And then I ended up going from literally having a D in that class to finishing that course with a B plus. This same instructor uh, was present at the University of Toledo last year when I completed my doctorate degree. I oh, wanted wow. to make sure. Yeah. So I remember changing my major to communication arts from education. And then I told her, I said, I'm going to be your first advisee who earns their doctorate degree. And then she said, okay, like I'm going to hold you to that. So that was true. I became the first person that she advised at the undergraduate level to earn my PhD or my doctorate. And then I invited her uh, to that ceremony. I wanted to make sure that she was there. So, yeah, you know, just the, the relationships are really important. And we talked about that, you know, within the uh, the Norton Guide, or not not that we were the authors, but with the <laughs> authors who, yeah. are, who are on the show, right, oh, yeah. or on the podcast. Yeah, speaking with them about the importance of those relationships. And it sounds like with you in both cases, those relationships were really, really important to you being successful. For sure. And uh, I, I think uh, I do want to narrate the incident of the other instructor that I had intended to talk about earlier, talking about relationships. What he did was, so this was a class, again, introductory in ecology and evolution. And he ran the course in a similar fashion, like with question answers. We He would never like, prompt us directly and tell us the answer he would always guide us to the answer right 
But the other interesting thing he did was he had a lot, he had three credit hours allotted in a week, right, to teach. Um, And he basically told us in the first week of class, I'm going to teach only two lecture hours a week. The third one is just like a drop-in session. Just come and ask whatever questions you want. want. We'll just like have a chat. That's our class hour. And this is testament to instructors who like sometimes are hesitant to like cut down on material. How am I going to teach all this material? I have only this much class time. He had three credit hours and he chose not to teach that one credit hour every week. Then what he did in those in those chat sessions is we would literally, like literally any question was on the table to be asked, right? We could ask him anything. And I think that really built this relationship with that professor where we felt unafraid to ask him anything. Like even today, all of us, when we go back to our alma mater, we make sure to, a lot of us make sure to meet with him because every time you chat with him, you you discover something new, you learn a new perspective, he'll recommend books to read to you and so on and so forth. And it's just like hours pass by and I can talk to him for hours and he can do that with every student. So it's it's just testament to how he built that relationship with us, right, in the classroom that made us uh, go to him for advice and really taught us to also... Uh, uh, he taught us a lot of things in life that, you know, it's very hard to come by that kind of advice, I'll be honest. And and now it's funny that that time I didn't listen to his advice. And then later on, I started giving the same advice to my students in the class, which I found <laughs> hilarious. So for one, he would like, so we would ask him, like, what is it like to be a scientist? Because we had never met scientists before. And we had like been thrown into this institution. And he was himself in love with his field, right? So he was like, what better job do you have than you get paid to think? You just sit and think most of the days and and you're thinking mm. about big questions of the universe and you're getting paid to do that. And so he, he really gave this, I would admit, a rosy-eyed view of, of science as a discipline because <laughs> that's not what most scientists do nowadays. <laughs> he did like inspire us. And then I remember we were asking about like, what was the purpose of life? And like... Uh, and he was very pragmatic in that sense. So he would like answer those questions. And then later on, when uh, we were interested as a group to meet, he would tell us like, oh, uh, there's this great movie that I have watched at that time. And it was, I think it was about the, uh, it was actually a, a movie based on a psychology study that was done about, uh, uh, I don't know if you know of the study quartets where they, basically assigned some people to be prisoners and some people to be the jailers. And it was actually talking about how just uh, this kind of, if you give authority to someone or just the impression of authority to someone, how that can then play into their psyche and they become the oppressors uh, mm. just by by being in that position, even though they're otherwise, they don't have even though otherwise people will never do like acts of violence, will never perform acts of violence on others at a humanitarian level. But when they are given this authority that is almost like unchecked, that mm-hmm. there is a psyche that then converts them into the oppressors and so on. So he told us about the psychology study and then told us about a movie that was made based on those trials. And like these were real trials where people were assigned as prisoner or jailers and and what ended up happening at the end of that. And 
and he not only recommended that movie he then watched it with us right he took out time yeah. of his saturday sunday he watched the movie with us discussed it we would have discussions on books he's reading and he would tell us oh this is a great book you guys should read you will learn about this perspective etc so he always made whatever we were learning in the classroom relevant to the way we understood society as a structure and he took that time right like who has the time to like sit and watch a movie with their students outside of class hours <laughs> but he did do that uh, and so uh, yeah he is one professor who's whatever he said till date i think i always look back on as good advice <laughs> in some ways or the other they have turned out to be good advice uh, and and i uh, whenever i talk about how science education when done right can really uh, not make machines out of people but can actually make you into thinking critical thinking human beings and mm-hmm. and and make you draw connections between science and society i think he's a testament for what good science education can do to a person <laughs> yeah and was that um well cuz now i'm like was that the stanford uh, universe was that yeah yeah, cool. yeah. it was like yeah, some yeah. sanford trials or something like that yeah, yeah. there we go yeah um i think uh sorry to if 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 my undergrad professors listening in on this yeah i think we watched that as well well it was played i don't know if i watched it but, <laughs> but it was quite brutal and horrific i don't think i've got to the end <laughs> yeah that's one of those when i was in school especially it wasn't as bad in in undergrad, but yeah, definitely when it was in high school, when those lights went out, so did my lights. So, yeah, I was going. Yeah, I was going to see. <laughs> okay, so let me just you know you you've been in the position now for five months, you say, mm-hmm. and uh, so we can you know I don't want to make I don't want to make our listeners uh, listen to too much of us. Because I do I do appreciate all of this conversation. I feel like this has been now. Let me let me just be honest. We were supposed to interview someone else, but then that person ended up emailing. So you might have heard it uh, in an email that uh, that popped up or the, the sound in the background. But that person emailed and they got their schedule mixed up. So Rush and I were just like, hey, we could just literally just <laughs> do like an off the cuff like interview and everything. So the, none of this is scripted. We are literally just sitting here talking. So yeah. we appreciate all of you. One thing that you were going to ask our guest today was, you know, talking about AI, because now you just started, you know, uh, our, our responsibility is not to turn, you know, students into machines, but there is this huge machine now of artificial intelligence that has been taking over a lot more of our college classrooms. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of educators are really nervous about it, you know, for a multitude of different reasons. And, you know, some of it has to do with whenever you hear the word artificial, right? So when you hear artificial, I think that that already throws a lot of folks off. And you combine it with the word intelligence after it, uh, that already is going to create, you know, some, um, some, 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 some natural hesitancy, you know, as it relates to the concept in and of itself. But as we are in an era now where artificial intelligence is or AI is just all around us, you know, just from your own, you know, kind of growth, how have you taken, you know, steps to acknowledge AI inside of the classroom, as well as work with instructors to, um, you know, to 
to learn more about it, you know, at, at their own level as well, right? Because at least at the University of Colorado, we don't and we can't create some type of policy in which, you know, instructors have to embrace it or engage with it. And at the same time, too, what we know is that, you know, that is something that a lot of students are just using. So what we, at least what I try to do is to try to help instructors, you know, become more comfortable with what options are available that don't put students in a position of breaking honor codes and so on and so forth. Mm. So I guess, you know, just talk to us a little bit about, you know, what your experience has been with it and what are, what, what could be some of your best advice uh, with instructors in terms of how they are working with AI? Yeah. Um, so as part of, so I would say that when, when the whole chat GPT thing came out, I was ignorant. I was like, oh, this is just some new trend like TikTok or something. It's going to die down in some time. So I was just like, yeah, I'm not going to look at this for a while. And then when it came to dissertation writing, everyone was like, oh, ChatGPT is great. It can like, it won't write my dissertation for me, but it'll help like uh, fix grammatical mistakes. And then I started using it sometimes to like check whether my grammar is correct or not. And then if I was stuck at a particular sentence and I just couldn't move past it, I would sometimes get a uh, chat GPT to like tell me, okay, how should I write this? And then it would give me uh, possibilities, which are mostly bad, to be honest. They were like very either too flowery sentences or too simplistic and like mm. both completely different from my writing style. So I didn't get it to write everything for me, but I did give me sometimes words that I would think about like, oh, I, I can use it for this. Uh, even when I was preparing to interview for that matter, I um, gave ChatGPT my job description and asked it, okay, if I'm called for an interview, how do I prepare for this interview? And it gave me good prompts to go off of. So it gave me like possible questions I would be asked. How should I uh, think about addressing them? And at a time when I was just so busy doing so many things at the same time, I, it was really a tool that I used to my benefit. Uh, and it helped me prepare better. Um, and I uh, uh, and so my advice to instructors is remember that your students are also going to explore ChatGPT in this manner at, at some point or the other. So uh, definitely like excluding something completely from the syllabus or treating it as a taboo is going to uh, not only hamper learning, I feel like, but it will also create opportunities for academic dishonesty. Whereas if, if instructors took, took it to be like, okay, this is a tool, let me understand how this works, and then let me see what are ways in which I, my students may benefit from it, I think an instructor who is a little open-minded about the use of AI may serve students better. Because to be honest, these students in the the world is already adopting AI in their different disciplines. And it really is a powerful tool. Uh, we may... You may be scared that, you know, we don't understand what it's doing because it's just spouting words out of nowhere and it sounds like a person, but it's actually really just an algorithm or a model that has learned how language works by being trained on different scripts and different uh, data. And it's really just predicting how sentences work, right? So so that's what essentially it is. So I don't know that it's, it's going to take over or like we need to like completely... Uh, be scared of it because I, I think if we wrestle with that discomfort for just a minute and then see ways in which we can 
one incorporated in our own teaching and learning. So one thing we've been doing, uh, I would want to inform our listeners is that the CTL uh, has an AI community of practice that's open to instructors where every mm. month we do presentations for an hour on different topics related to AI, uh, the use of AI in assessments, the use of AI as play- plagiarism detection tools and what the ethics of that is, what the ethics of using AI is, and so on. So we have these sessions once a month, every month, and I encourage teachers who are listening to join us in those discussions. Um, so as part of one of those uh, top meetings, what I did or explored uh, was use of AI as formative assessment tools and how you can basically use certain prompts to get AI to just talk to you uh, or sorry create some questions for you like a question bank and those questions are admittedly simple but they're a starting point when oftentimes we want uh, the struggle is that we want students to engage in formative assessments and and constantly get feedback because we know it improves learning but formative assessments are hard to implement because it's like constant right throughout the semester you have to come up with a set of questions you have to provide grading and feedback for those questions and so i think ai can simplify the life of professors in some ways in which they can use it to come up with multiple choice questions they can use it to design um, uh, their syllabi like sometimes just structure their syllabi if it's a new professor who's teaching and i think ai is powerful in those senses and uh, and also uh, it can be a good tutor to students so so that's another recommendation i have like uh, there are a lot of assignment ideas related to chat gpt and and use of ai in the classroom and i would encourage faculty to just try at least one assignment right like in the uh, just try this one little thing that you can do in a classroom maybe it's just uh, teaching students how AI is not going to think as well for them, right? So getting them to actually revise an assignment that AI has spouted for it and so on. Um, and then finally, I would say it actually to the students. I don't know if students are listening this to this podcast, but hopefully instructors can send that message to their students that there are definitely certain skill sets that you want students to learn and uh when you learn out of it through practice and memory, uh, you remember those skills or you become better at those skills through practice. So students should know not to over-rely on AI as well, right? We want them to learn certain skills, be it writing well, be it critical thinking and so on. If we rely too much on AI, I think at some point we may uh, lose the ability to develop those skills in a more concrete manner it's just like how when i didn't have a smartphone i used to remember i still remember phone numbers from like landline numbers i used to dial when i was a kid and it's because i didn't have to look i couldn't i didn't have the option to look up the number easily right but now i don't remember most numbers that i dial like i I have to make a conscious effort to memorize those numbers uh and so it's similarly i think using ai for someone who uh, has seen a world without phones and seen one with smartphones, uh, I think it's easier to understand the value in also not over-relying on AI for that matter. So I would say like kind of a balanced approach is the best. <laughs> Even with what you, and thank you for all of that. Those are some really great um, things to to keep in mind. And even with just something that you just said about like as simple with the with the phone numbers, right? 
you know, I used to have to remember all of these landlines and everything. And now with cell phones, I don't have to do that. Right. So that's part of what a lot more research and folks who are who are, um, you know, reiterating the importance of, of the emergence of, of AI is that in a lot of different ways, and you said this and in, in some of the other things that you said as well, is that it does help to reduce some of the cognitive load. And I think that in higher ed, particularly with as it relates to teaching, we think of the cognitive load and the and being able to carry that as another form of rigor. And I think to some degree, yes, we want students to be able to you know, to definitely think for themselves and so on and so forth and be able to, you know, carry a lot cognitively. But there is a point where this is sometimes it's just it's it's really an overload of, yeah, for of, sure. of, yeah. of the things it's that, like yeah. Once, of the, <laughs> once students have learned those skills, you don't want to keep like getting them to apply them again and again when they are already good at something, right? Like say yeah. citations, like once you've learned how to do a citation, you don't need to have to like do it manually yourself. That's why we use citation managers or AI is great as a citation like uh, formatting tool. I use uh-huh. it all the time. <laughs> like it's not that I don't know the, but I know the syntax of APA. It's just that I use it because it's easier, right? Um, yeah, and even with what you said, right? That That's another great example because yeah. someone someone could be listening and say that, well, sometimes when you put, a citation in it always it doesn't always come out correctly exactly but it's not necessarily about that it's about being able to want prepare someone to be able to identify what's incorrect about the things that are also outputted right without them feeling like they have to do 100% of it so that's the same thing too you know and i appreciated you know some of the perspectives that you offered about you know being able to generate different questions or you know if there's a prompt or something that comes out being able to identify what parts of that, you know, are limited and what is it limited by, yeah. you know, and I do appreciate there are a lot more instructors that are embracing AI by going through activities such as that inside of their classrooms. But, you know, all of this makes me think about if no one has seen this video, you should look it up. But I think it's on YouTube, but it's a video showing when Burger King started to accept credit cards. And when people were coming to the store asking, you know, and they were being asked to use a credit card, how it just sent a whole bunch of people like, you know, like, what do you mean? Like, you're not taking cash. <laughs> so, so it's like it caused like this huge uproar of people to where now I don't go into the store asking if they accept credit cards. My question is, do you all use tap to pay? Yeah. <laughs> right? Right. So, and then if they don't use tap to pay, I'm like, man, they're really behind. Right. So like, what do you mean I have to use my credit card? Right. Like the credit card is now is now the old form of cash. So just being able to recognize and try to be a little bit facetious about it, but just recognizing just where a lot of the trends and things are going. And I by no means um, hold anything against anybody who's not necessarily embracing AI or has a little bit of, you know, is a little bit hesitant to just, you know, dive two feet into it. But I also appreciate what you had to say, which is, you know, also being able to find one of the ways that's really helpful in embracing it is when you can see how AI can also help you. Yeah. 
And I think when you recognize how AI can help you on a personal level, it actually opens you up to being more receptive to the ways in which it can help your learners as well. Because I've done some of those things too, where um, I'm little, I do this today. I don't necessarily take 100% of the question, but if I'm putting, when I'm putting together workshops, I don't have to be responsible for coming up with 100% of the questions anymore. Yeah. If I know, if I know the topic at hand and if I know, you know, certain things or whatever, you can literally put that into such as chat GPT and then generate, you know, some questions. And if there are specific things that you also want to take, you can take parts of that question and then add in other pieces of that as well, or even just edit it down to get to, you know, a little bit, you know, something a little bit more specific to what you're looking for folks to engage in within that particular activity. So um, there's a lot of, you know, conversations around it. I do appreciate you giving the, um, giving the, uh, the, the promotion, the marketing, community. yeah, of, of AI as a, as a community of practice within the CTL. Well, um, like yeah. I said, oh, go Can ahead. I also quickly add that we also have a great website page with resources on teaching well with AI. Uh-huh. There's folks to also look at that here on CU campus. <laughs> awesome. Thank you very much. Well, as I stated, uh, that is going to wrap up today's episode. Um, now we got to figure out. I'm going to put in Chat GPT how to how to yeah, title, to title this episode. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you, Dr. Rachanabave, uh, one for being a tremendous colleague, uh, and thank you for joining the CTL. You've been a great addition to our team this year. You and I just talked on Friday as we were leaving and I was like, you are like one of the smartest people <laughs> like that is walking around that center. So I do appreciate having the opportunity to work with you this academic year. I'm just going to be up the street. So if there's anything that I can do to assist you or anyone who's listening in today, please always feel, feel welcome uh, to reach out. But until then, good luck to all of you. Good luck to all the work that you're going to do and um, you all take care. <laughs>